Good morning, Castleton Church family. So wonderful to have another Sunday for our worship together. Last Sunday evening, we had a congregational meeting, and I heard from many of you what I felt myself. There was just a sense of the Lord's goodness and kindness and him granting us unity together as members of a church. We, we heard testimonies. We heard exhortations to us as a church. We got updates on the ministry that was happening. Uh, it was such an important moment for our church. If you missed that meeting, I would love for you to be able to listen to the recording of it. Um, if you reach out to us, we'll be glad to send you a link to that. Um, it's one of those things that you really want to be there for, but if you can't be there for it, at least listen to the recording and share in the joy digitally. This morning, we get to uh, turn our attention to a series that will take us for the next four weeks on this very topic of how we as a church remain united. And before we have such a, a big undertaking as that, it's only fitting that we ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Would, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, uh, we want your will to be done on earth as in heaven, certainly, but in your church. We want to be unified around the things that you love. We want to be unified in the things that you tell us to hate. Lord Jesus, would you grant us now as we turn our attention to your word on this important topic of unity, would you grant us by your spirit a supernatural peace and love for each other as your body. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Fight night is coming. No, I'm not talking about the next presidential debate. No, I'm talking about fight night at your local church. This Sunday, 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 come and find out who will leave in victory? Who will leave with their heads hanging in shame? Only one victor can remain. Come and find out. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Uh, that's a, a description of too many churches down through the ages. Believers finding ways to get into big old fights and split the church as a result. I heard of one example, a, a church that managed to get into a big old fight over a matter of choir robes. A uh, well-beloved pastor had stepped down, a, a new young buck preacher had come around, and he decided that the choir shouldn't wear robes anymore. Well, there were a few people that disagreed with him on that topic. They said that we've always worn robes in this choir. The, the old pastor, he never would have required us to take off our robes. Just who does this young pastor think he is? Uh, those on the other side of the issue said, well, th this young pastor is trying to build his own ministry. The choir robes, maybe they made sense in a previous generation, but now they're a barrier to people coming into the church. Why can't these people get over this really minor thing? Pretty soon, they were lobbing missiles at each other, and the whole church exploded into a million little pieces. A church split was the result. Christians are great at getting into questions that lead to quarrels, aren't we? Finding things to argue about, to disagree about, whether they're big or they're small. Uh, certainly, it's not just choir robes. 
it comes to matters of doctrine that divide sometimes, aren't there? I was listening to uh, a clip that went viral a while back with a pastor that was le- naming all of the people that believed the wrong things and were going to hell. He, he listed some things that all Christians should agree on. People who reject the lordship of Christ, who don't believe in the Trinity, you know, things like that. But then in his list, he said... And don't forget about those mid-tribulationists that are on their way to hell. I'm not sure that's a line any of us want to join. There are lots of battles that aren't worth fighting. I hope none of us want to be in a part of one of those fighting units that goes about splitting a church. And yet there are times where Christians are called to contend for the faith. To make sure the purity of the gospel is not undermined. How can a church remain unified with such tensions pulling on it from both directions? Or or especially at the moment where we live in our society where things are so polarized on seemingly every issue. How in the world can a church be unified? One of our core values that we have on our wall is called biblical unity in diversity. It's designed to speak to this exact thing. It's a, when we say a core value, it's something that describes our church that we are committed to. I'm just going to read the text of our core value as what we hope the Lord would make us a church into. This is what it says. It says, we desire to be a community of believers that reflects the unified beauty of our triune God. We believe that in Christ, God has unified us by his spirit. Therefore, we celebrate generational and ethnic diversity of the image bearers God brings into our fellowship. We also value an atmosphere of humility and charity as we engage in diverse theological discussions that fall into the framework of sound doctrine. Well, that's easy enough to say, but how do we as a church actually do that? How do we arrive at a biblical unity in diversity in the relationships we have as Castleton Community Church. Well, my hope is that over the next four weeks, we would go on a journey together, that we would arrive at this by studying our Bibles and come to the conviction that God is glorified even when we're united in our diversity. Let me give you a little roadmap for what we're going to do over the next four weeks. These first two weeks, we're going to look at the topic of Christian conscience, Christian conscience. Then in week three, we're going to turn our attention to theological triage. What is a fight that's actually worth having? And then in week four, we'll look how God is glorified in our diversity at the compelling community that is the church. Now, let me just say on the front end that this is a series that really hangs together, that there will be many questions that will come up that you won't have answered or maybe something that is said in such a way that it needs to be balanced out by what comes later in the series. So uh, I hope you're always catching up on sermons you miss. But this time in particular, for these four weeks, please make sure you listen to these messages and you listen to them in order so that the Lord can bring us together on this journey toward biblical unity in diversity. This morning, we begin on that topic of Christian conscience. And we see this important truth, that considering conscience is critical for unity in the church. That considering conscience is critical for unity in the church. We'll begin by considering your conscience. 
considering your conscience. One of those Disney classics is the movie Pinocchio. You know, the little puppet boy that comes to life. One of the main characters in that is Jiminy Cricket. He's assigned by the, the blue fairy to be Pinocchio's conscience. He sits on his shoulder. He, he urges Pinocchio to do good and to avoid bad. At many points in the story, Pinocchio ignores his advice and runs into calamity as a result. I mean, that, that story is definitely one of the main themes of it is the importance of conscience in someone's life. But, but have you ever stopped to think of, about the question, what actually is your conscience? One really helpful definition comes from author Andy Nasali, who wrote a book entitled Conscience. It's this, he says, your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe to be right and wrong. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe to be right and wrong. You, you could say it another way, you could say that your conscience is your personal awareness of good and bad. It's that moral compass that directs you to, to make decisions in your everyday life. And now there's a lot that the Bible has to say about your conscience. And we're going to take a, a, just a, a very quick walk through some of the things that the Bible says to establish some categories and definitions that will help us in this series. Now, realize that your conscience is a gift from God. God built into each and every human being a conscience. You think of a, a passage like Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, where, where it's described as there being a law written on our hearts. Even if we've never been exposed to God's word, we, we know right and wrong. We are without excuse because God gave us this conscience. You can think of uh, conscience in this way as God's breaks that he puts on sinful hum humanity. It's the, the thing that restrains us from being as bad as we could be. That's why you feel so guilty when you do something that you know to be wrong. That pit in your stomach, that queasy feeling, that loss of sleep you have when you know you have done something wrong. That is your conscience at work. It also works on the flip side. It commends the good for you. It, it makes you feel good when you do an act that you believe to be good. That is a gift from God to all of humanity. Now, however, as wonderful as the gift is, the gift has very distinct limits. There are limits to the effectiveness of conscience. Now, I was uh, listening to a commercial recently for uh, new cars, and th this particular ad was playing up the safety uh, systems of this car. It has uh, these automated systems that are designed to prevent you from having a crash. If you're about to merge into to, uh, another car, it'll actually correct the direction of your car to avoid it. If you're about to bump into a car, it'll apply brakes before you put your foot on the brake. It would be a mistake to think of your conscience as doing that, as making decisions for you. No, your conscience is, is more like an alarm that goes off. More like that beeping light on your dashboard when it's time to go for an oil change with your car. Uh, a conscience makes you aware that you're about to or have already made a bad decision, but the conscience, your conscience does not make the decision for you. It warns you, it doesn't stop you. Not only that, even worse, your conscience can become miscalibrated. 
In Romans chapter 1, verse 32, there's a group of people that are being described as having resisted their conscience that God put within them so often that in fact their conscience stops working correctly. They start thinking that evil things are good and that good things are evil. They feel good when they do bad things in God's sight and they feel bad when they do good things in God's sight. As effective as an instrument as your conscience is, it can become miscalibrated if you ignore it enough or you misuse it enough. And if you do that even to an extreme, it can break all together. 1 Timothy 4, 2 describes a seared conscience. The image being used there is getting the idea of like a burn victim who loses feeling in the patch of skin that experienced the trauma. The, the nerves die. You stop being able to feel the instrument of your body stops working. Well, in the same way, if you abuse your conscience enough, it can stop working altogether. No more pangs of guilt. No more breaks on the human heart. And what a dark place that is to be. But the good news is that broken and caked up dirty consciences can be restored. That your conscience as a Christian can be redeemed. Hebrews 9.14 is worth us reading together. It says this. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. One of the things that Christ bought for us on the cross is to redeem our consciences. He can cleanse our sin-caked and abused consciences and bring them back to a healthy, calibrated state. Now, like so many other parts in the Christian life, that doesn't necessarily mean it happens all at once. Calibrating your conscience is a slow, difficult, progressive uh, uh, progressive endeavor. It, it's much like other areas of sanctification in your life through study of God's word and prayer and intentional decision making. Little by little, we can see our consciences cleansed by the blood of Jesus and more in line what, with what God has revealed in his word. And, and that process of calibrating your conscience is a difficult one. It, it's a very uncomfortable experience to evaluate things you think to be good or bad, and even to change the way you think about something so basic to you as a human being. And yet it's worth the effort because a clear conscience is a great asset to living as a Christian. It allows you to go to bed at night and not have any guilt in your heart. It allows you to serve Jesus with joy, to trust your instincts as a Christian. It, it'll aid you in your prayer life. It'll make you more loving to other Christians. It'll allow you to be a better church member. It will make you a more effective witness for Jesus if you have a well-calibrated conscience. Now, for all those benefits, though, it's a challenging, challenging thing to calibrate your conscience. I mean, in some areas, it's fairly easy. On the big things, on the major critical matters of doctrine, things like the resurrection of Jesus or salvation by faith alone, it's pretty easy to calibrate your conscience. But what about some of those harder doctrinal calibrations of conscience? 
Uh, Some verses in the Bible are difficult to interpret. It's hard to come to a conviction one way or another. Uh, Think about the reference to the Nephilim in Genesis. Uh, There's a lot of ambiguity as to what that means exactly. And and it's difficult to have a well-calibrated conscience on such a uh, a detailed question. Similarly, there's lots of differences of opinion about how to understand uh, the millennium in Revelation 20. Christians come to differing opinions about it. It's easy to agree and to calibrate our consciences on the big stuff, but on some of the secondary matters, it's more difficult. But it's not just doctrinal disputes where calibration becomes difficult. Think of the practical questions of living as a Christian. On the big moral questions, obviously, we need to calibrate our consciences and do it quickly. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. But what about some of the more questionable ones? What evangelistic strategy should you use to reach your neighbor? Should your family watch Disney movies or no? Should you cancel your Netflix account? Should you use social media? If so, how much should you use it? Which platform should you use? How much medical intervention will you use in your life? How much attention to caring for the environment and stewarding creation should a Christian have? Or or what about the hornet's nest of parenting? Are you a public, a private, or a homeschooling family? Will you be a cry it out or an attachment parenting sort of approach for your newborn? Are you going to spank or won't you? At what age should your kids have phones? Are you going to let them play tackle football? Or what about right now, the thing that seems to be on the forefront of everyone's minds? Think, Think of all the opinions regarded to COVID-19. How big a risk is it really? Masks? How, how effective are they? How bound are we to wear them or not? Is the government killing it in its response or is it killing us? Or what about a vaccine? Is it salvation or, or are you more skeptical about what it will bring? Realize how many of these matters there are in a Christian life. Decision after decision that you have to make that it may well be that other Christians come to very different conclusions on. How do you keep yourself from engaging in quarrels and fights without end over every little thing? Well, for help, we can turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 is here to help us on these matters that, that aren't primary, not the majors, but the minors, to help us to know how our consciences can live peaceably with each other even when we differ. We'll we'll see two points as we move through the first 12 verses this morning. First, take a pass on passing judgment. Take a pass on passing judgment. We see that in verses 1 through 4 and verses 10 through 12. Uh, Commentator Doug Moo says that this passage has a ring structure to it. That is that verses 1 through 4 and 10 through 12 are like the outside of the ring. They, they tell us the command of the passage, do not judge your brother on matters of conscience. But then in the middle, there is the theological foundation for that command. That is the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 1 tips us off that this section is dealing with a quagmire of quarrels. The, the situation was something like this. There were Jews and Gentiles that had both been recently converted into the church. The Jews came in with some baggage though. They had been uh, religious, attentive to all the regulations that came with being a Jew in that time. And that meant they had consciences that were calibrated for those regulations. When it came to certain things like what they ate and what day they kept as special, they had very, very strong convictions. And that became a problem when they were invited to the church picnic and they were around other Christians, Gentile Christians, that did not share those same convictions. These Gentiles had never been Jews. They saw there was no requirement to keep these Jewish regulations like eating kosher meat only or keeping the Sabbath day and the other festivals. And they felt no reason to bind themselves to such unnecessary rules. So as you can imagine, pretty quickly, the blame game starts. They get into quarrels. And we see in verse 3, both sides are at fault. Let's read verse 3 together. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. To understand this passage, you have to understand who the weak and who the strong are. The weak are those with extra unnecessary rules in their conscience. Their consciences are calibrated with some extra rules beyond what God has said in his word that they need to have. And yet those rules are there. They are weak in the sense that they have extra restrictions. That would be the Jewish believers in this case who couldn't eat non-kosher meat, or in some cases couldn't eat meat at all because of their convictions. On the other hand, you have the strong believers. Those would be the Gentiles. They are strong in the sense that their consciences are free from these unnecessary rules. They don't feel the same restrictions as the weak Gen uh, Jewish believers. Now, again, though, notice that they, that does not mean whether they're weak or strong, that they are free from guilt. It turns out both of them are engaging in sinful behavior. Those who have strong convictions are being judgmental to those who don't have such convictions. The, the Jews were set looking at the Gentiles as they ate non-kosher meat, and they're saying, how in the world can they be so careless? They don't know if that meat was sacrificed to an idol. Don't they know that God's people are supposed to be separate? They must not care much for holiness at all. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were looking at the overly restrictive Jews and saying, man, why can't they get with the program? Don't they know Jesus has declared all foods clean? They're ruining the party. Come on, guys. They were despising the Jewish Christians for not being able to exercise their freedom in Christ. This blame game was going back and forth. They were firing missiles of judgment and loathing back and forth. And this church was in danger of blowing apart into a million pieces. What is the solution? Well, we see it in verses 11 through 12. It's to let the Lord handle it. To let the Lord handle it. That, that's a, a phrase that gets misused very often. Let the Lord handle it as an excuse not to live up to our obligations as Christians. In this particular verse, letting the Lord handle it is, in fact, a command. 
sorry, let's back up to verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The logic is very simple here. You should not engage in judging someone else over a matter of conscience, over one of these disputable matters. Because at the end of the day, you don't have the authority to do so. That authority belongs to God alone. Each of us are heading for a heavenly audit. We will come before the Lord Jesus and give an account for everything in our lives. And you can be sure that Jesus is perfectly qualified to audit your fellow church member on this issue you disagree on. Christians are to leave to the Lord the business of judging each other on these secondary issues. And once you get that in place, it's actually an incredibly freeing thing. It's not your job to police and correct every minor matter. No, your authority lies somewhere else, on the majors, on the essentials. Let Jesus handle these controversial, smaller divisions. Now, for us as Christians, that means that each of us needs to exercise restraint when we feel that impulse to argue. Now, there are some arguments worth having. We'll, we'll come back to that in week three. But recognize right now, again, we're talking about these disputable matters. The ones are supposed to be open-handed about. Where Christians can disagree, where the Bible doesn't expressly forbid, and the Bible doesn't express, uh, expressly require. And in those, in, those, in those situations, when we find ourselves feeling strongly about a particular thing, we, we need to resist the urge to argue about it. Let Jesus handle it. Say, say to your, practice saying this to yourself. You know, I may disagree with that idea, but I think I, think I can live with them thinking that, and I, I think Jesus will sort it out on the final day. Now, let me just make a application to, I think, an arena that's decidedly unhelpful on this point, and that's with social media. Let me encourage you to pause before posting and ask, is this really, is this really a missile I need to launch? Is this really a fight I need to pick? Do I need to argue about this? Especially if it's someone you're not in face-to-face close contact relationship with, uh, someone you know from a distance. Uh, maybe the Lord doesn't have you in a place where they are to be corrected by you. Now, this doesn't mean that there is no place for having conversations or for learning about different perspectives. But I fear too often we go into these, not looking to listen or learn, but just ready to blast the other side. Show them how wrong they are and how right we are. That's showing judgmentalism in the heart. And, and we're seeing here that we're not to have that if we were to be unified in our body. Now, there are some that would say, okay, well, if that's the case, let's not focus on doctrine because it divides, right? Let, let's not think about any of these disputable matters. Let's just back off and not talk about it and, and just preach the gospel and focus on the most essential things. But as we'll see in a second, in our third point, that's not actually allowable. Third point, we need to come to convictions to honor the Lord. 
come to convictions to honor the Lord. Look in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul doesn't say, stop talking about it. Doesn't say, don't think about it. He says, come to a conviction personally. There's a call here for us each to form these sorts of convictions on, yes, these disputable matters of conscience, but to personalize them, to realize that even if the Lord can, uh, brings us to a place where we feel strongly about it, he may not do the same for another Christian. The most important thing is not the specifics of the line, but the heart behind it. For us to want to honor Jesus in all things. That's what he says in verse 6. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in, the, the, uh, abstains in honor of the Lord. And give thanks to God. How, how incredible is that? You can literally do two completely opposite, diametrically opposed actions and honor Jesus in both ways. Now, as will be revealed later, Paul does have an informed conscience on these matters. This is not him saying, I don't know the answer, so do whatever you want. Now, Paul's going to land with the Gentiles on this one. And yet, Paul has so much grace toward those who have consciences that are bound on this issue that he wants people to understand you can honor Jesus if you live according to your conscience in these areas. You see, brothers and sisters, we will have imperfect convictions in this world. It's just inescapable. We don't have perfect knowledge of everything. The, the Bible speaks clearly on many things, but there are many things it doesn't speak all that clearly on, and some things it doesn't speak to hardly at all. And on those matters... It would be awfully arrogant for us to assume that we have it absolutely nailed how a Christian has to live in that particular issue. But while we have imperfect convictions, what a wonderful thing it is that we serve a perfect Savior. We can trust that, yes, he has the authority to judge us in our convictions, but we can also trust that on the most essential things, we have all the confidence in the world. We can bet our very lives on the truths of the gospel. If you're listening this morning and you're not a Christian, you may have the impression of Christians that we think we know everything about everything there is. That there's no thing that we will not tell people how to live about. And that's actually not true. There are many things Christians don't know for certain. And yet there are some things that God has revealed and has been clear on in his word that are so clear and so important that we will stake our very eternal lives on them. We believe that Jesus, the perfect man, lived a perfect life. He, he was sent from heaven. God from heaven himself come down to live as one of us, to live a sinless life and give that life up as a sacrifice for our sins. We believe that same Jesus came back to life three days later, which is why he has authority over everything in this world and over every square inch of our lives. And we trust that we can entrust every part of our lives to him. The forgiveness of our sins, that we could be right before God, that we could be not guilty. 
The fact that we could live with him forever in heaven. The fact that he will give us far greater joys than anything in this world. Friend, we don't pretend to know everything about every topic. But on this topic of how you can be right with God, we we have utter certainty of the man Jesus Christ. And we invite you to come and meet him if you don't know him yourself. But for all of us who are Christians, even if we don't have perfect certainty on all matters, let's realize what our goal is. It's to live lives that honor Jesus in every way as far as it's able to us. To live lives that honor Jesus in every way as far as it's able to us. Maybe this morning, as we're talking about this issue of conscience, you're realizing that you haven't given this a whole lot of thought up until now. By default, we tend to absorb rules into our conscience from the environment around us, from from our family, from our friends, from our our home culture. Now, it doesn't mean those rules are necessarily bad, but it does mean that we need to be intentional about the assumptions we make about right and wrong. We need to do the work of going to God's word and asking what's actually a rule that's in there and what's actually a rule that I've gotten in my conscience from somewhere else. If you've never done this, uh, it can be a scary sort of enterprise, but I encourage you do it. It'll be worth it. And, and as, until you get to the point where you have formed biblical convictions on these things, just, just hold off on the assumptions you make on other Christians when you come to something you disagree on. Now, to those of us who have given lots of thought to some of these convictions, maybe you find yourself ready to rumble on one of them. Let's remember the example of Paul here. He had a very informed conscience and all the authority of an apostle, and yet he had so much grace to even Christians who he thought were in the wrong on these issues. We should be slow, extremely patient, the most patient of all towards each other, as we have differences in calibration on these secondary, disputable matters of conscience. And brothers and sisters, if we do that, if we take the time to pause and consider our consciences before we launch a salvo and start a a war within our church, well, what a sweet unity we can experience in the body of Christ. We need to consider our conscience so we can glorify God in the unity of the church. Early on in my ministry life, I learned how easy it is to misstep in this area the hard way. I was leading a Bible study on a college campus, and there were a number of students that were coming. We were seeing evangelistic fruit. Things were going well. And in a very flippant way, I made a comment, joking that I would not do anything crazy in this Bible study like, and then I named a particular denomination of Christians. Now, up until then, I have to confess, I had not been around many of that particular denomination of Christians. It seemed easy to poke fun at them, to point out how wrong they were on this issue. And so to my horror, one of the students raised her hand and said, my father is a pastor in that denomination. I put my foot so far into my mouth that it was tickling my tonsils with my toes. Uh, The horror of that moment stuck with me. Thankfully, in that moment, I, I did ask for forgiveness. I realized my error. 
But as I reflected back on it, before the Lord, I, I, made, I made him a commitment. I said, Lord, I don't ever, I don't ever want to despise someone you've welcomed like that. I don't want to exclude someone because I haven't thought something through or because my mind is not rightly thinking about an issue. Would you help me not to do that? Now, I don't know that I've done that perfectly since then. I'm sure I haven't. But I know for sure I've paused and thought and tried to consider the conscience of whatever brother or sister I might be talking to before I make a pronouncement about how I see things. Brothers and sisters, let's do that. Let's leave it to the Lord whether we're right or wrong on a particular issue of conscience. And at the end of the day, let's endeavor to welcome each other even when we disagree. Let's take a pass on passing judgment because the unity of the church is worth it. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, would you help us to be that sort of a church? Would you help keep us from quarreling over questions that really aren't worth fighting over? And let us know the difference between a fight worth picking, a hill to die on, and something that we should leave to you. We pray you would help us to calibrate our consciences, to by the perfect standard of your word, to change the way we think little by little, to reflect the way you think about how we should live. But Lord, when we inevitably disagree, would you grant us grace and love for each other? Will you keep our mouths shut until we've paused to consider our brother and sister? And would you grant us a unity that glorifies you in the, in the eyes of a watching world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.